Good evening. I'll say it West Texas style. Howdy, y'all. <laughs> How are you guys doing? You alive out there? All right. I'm incredibly nervous, so I'm going to pray. Because that's just a good thing to do. Um, God, I come before you tonight. and um, God, I thank you for your presence. God, I thank you that where two or three are gathered, that you are in our midst. Jesus, I thank you for being here tonight. God, I pray that you would hide me in the shadow of your cross tonight. Jesus, that tonight I would make much of you. And God, that you would find me faithful. I love you and I commit this time to you. And uh, Holy Spirit, we just say come have your way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been talking about... You guys have been talking about reconciliation. And even down in Texas, I've heard a lot about what God's been doing on your campus and in through you. Um, and tonight we're talking about the process. Um, the process of re- reconciliation. Submitting to the Spirit, expectant of change, ready to share, and risking it all. Reconcilers aren't perfect people. They're broken people that are continually being reconciled day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. And God uses broken people to heal his world. God uses imperfect people, and he uses people in spite of themselves to do his work. The good news is God is big enough to do what he does without us. But in his grace and mercy, he allows us to be a part of that. Tonight, I want to tell you about a guy named Saul. Um, Most of you know about Saul. You've studied him in class. Um, And Saul was born in the city of Tarsus, and he was a highly educated man. He learned under the feet of Gamaliel, I think is how you say his name. And yet, the most interesting thing about Saul, the thing that echoes loudly about his life, is his absolute wickedness. People all around knew who Saul was, and they've heard of him. And he was the wolf that went after the fold of the lamb. Saul was the one who went and not only persecuted Christians, not only beat them up and had them imprisoned, he had them killed. This was Saul. Saul was a murderer. Saul was relentless in his wickedness before God. But the crazy thing is, Saul thought he was actually doing God a favor By doing this, our blindness, our messiness, our junk in our lives blinds us to the truth, always blinds us to the truth. And so Saul thought he was doing a good thing and he was persecuting the church and doing all these crazy, ridiculous things. He was relentless in this pursuit to do damage to God's church. He was unstoppable on a path of destruction that would wipe out the church at large. Out of his own mouth, Saul confessed in Galatians 1.13. He confesses to persecuting the church of God beyond measure and making havoc of it. And one day, Saul's on a journey and he's going to Damascus, some 140 miles north of where he's at. And in his hand, he has arrest warrants, and he's going to take him down. He's going to take him out. And he's traveling with one goal, to wipe out God's people. We know the story. He's traveling, and he's on a road, and he's got some people with him. And all of a sudden, a great bright light shines and knocks him to the ground. 
And there's a voice and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When his name is said twice, that's because he was being rebuked, reproofed. And Saul says, who is it, Lord? And when he says Lord, he's talking about, it's like a sign of respect, like a term of respect, like if he'd say sir or madam. And so Saul falls to the ground. There's this huge light. He's blinded and he hears a voice. And so he says, who are you? The voice then answered, this is Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. I imagine his heart stopped in that moment. Maybe it sank. Um, Maybe he had a little accident. I don't know. (laughs) But if I ever heard the audible voice of God like that, you know, it's like when you're a kid, okay? And your mom said no more cookies before dinner, and you just love cookies, so you're in the closet, and you're like eating four cookies, and you think you're in the clear, right? Then all of a sudden, a little light starts to come in the little pantry, and there goes the door, and there's your mom. And she's like, Johnny! (laughs) And you're like, oh, Hi, Mom. I was praying over the cookies. Eating cookies? No. (laughs) Right? You think you're in the clear, but you're not. See, nothing is hidden from the eyes of Almighty God. And sometimes with our junk, with our sin, we think that we can go in a closet and do it, and he doesn't see it, but he does. And Saul, the unstoppable persecutor of the church, the one who was relentless and wreaking havoc upon God's people, that day got busted out by Jesus. Saul, now trembling, asks, what must I do? And Jesus says this, go to the city for further instructions. (laughs) Okay, wow. Can I get the rest of the details here? Just go to the city. And so Saul stands up, and his friends have to help him, and he's blind. The same guy who carried arrest warrants in his hands, the same guy who used his very hands to kill Christians, the same guy who with his own eyes saw Stephen stoned to death right before him, now sees nothing. His same hands that were used to persecute the church are now being held by others who have to lead him to the city. Saul goes to the city, and for three days, he doesn't see. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. I wonder what Saul was thinking. I wonder what Saul might have been feeling those three days. Meanwhile, God goes to Ananias, his servant. He's like, hey, Ananias, I need you to go to Damascus. There's this dude there. His name is Saul. You're going to go pray for him and lay hands on him. He's at such and such a point. Like God literally tells him specifically where Saul is. See, God knows all. God sees all. He's like the ultimate GPS, better than that. And so Ananias is like, dude, God, are you kidding me? Saul, (laughs) does this come with a life insurance policy? I mean, this is a dude that is taking out Christians, okay? God, um, can I get a plan B? I'll go to the nursing home and play bingo. (laughs) And God's like, go. Has God ever asked you to do something and you try to opt for a plan B? So Ananias goes. Because the Bible says this, if you really love God, then you do what he asks you to do. That's a gut puncher. So anyway, Ananias goes and he goes to the city and he finds Saul. 
And Saul's there, and he's blind and probably miserable. And Ananias lays his hands on him and begins to pray for him. And immediately, scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. I wonder what it was like to lay hands on the same man who killed countless brothers and sisters of mine. I wonder what it would have been like to pray for someone that did such damage to the people he loved. Ananias prays for him. The scales fall from his eyes. And then Saul says, now what? And Ananias tells him, go, be baptized, be washed of your sins, and live this new, this new life out. So Saul goes, and he's baptized, and he calls on the name of Jesus as a Savior for the first time. The same Jesus he was trying to deny and kill others for claiming to know and be saved by and loved, Saul now calls him Messiah. God uses his people to bring healing and understanding. God uses you. He uses me. He uses people like Ananias if we're willing to simply go. To simply go and trust what God is doing. We know the rest of the story. Saul gets baptized. He repents. And immediately he goes and he starts proclaiming Jesus everywhere he goes. His name is eventually changed from Saul to Paul. Can you imagine that? It's crazy. The same guy who persecuted the Christians, the same guy who killed them, the same guy who denied this God, is now standing up preaching about him, telling people the story. But it wasn't his words that echoed. It was his life that spoke of something greater. See, Saul was no longer Saul, but now he was Paul. And he himself had been reconciled to Christ. With a new name, a new heart, and a new purpose, God used Paul to go out and change the world. Paul could have grown complacent and comfortable. He could have said, okay, God, I don't kill people anymore. Hope you have a great day. And gone and made tents or baked bread. I don't know what they did back then. But he didn't, because God had a greater calling on his life. God said, Saul, who is now Paul, will be my personal representative to all these people. What a calling, what a destiny. And Paul understood that, and he received that. Instead of going and stealing life, instead of going and wreaking havoc, he now goes and brings peace. He now goes and speaks life. See, God can use us in spite of us. Risking it all, Paul wasn't exactly welcomed with open arms. As a matter of fact, some people didn't even believe him. And someone even tried killing him, and he had to like do this little escape ninja-like move, and it was awesome, okay? But it wasn't all peaches and cream. It wasn't ice cream from here on out. No one said, yay, Paul, you're saved. Matter of fact, they're like, um... <laughs> Yeah, sure, you've had a life change. And they didn't welcome him, but Paul was willing to risk it all. It didn't matter if he got made fun of, talked about, or persecuted. Paul said yes to God. Paul was willing to risk it all. Did Paul reap the results of his previous life? Yeah. 
Did he maybe want to give up and quit sometimes? Yeah. Was God's grace sufficient in those moments? Yes. You see, when God has a calling on your life, then there are only two choices. Risk it all and live, walking this thing out, whatever it is God has asked you to do. Or deny it, thereby living in disobedience to God and living in perpetual death. Risking it all, three of the most dangerous words ever put together. Did Paul suffer hardship? Yeah. But God was greater. God uses broken people to do his work. And too many of us miss out on that because we think we need to pick the pieces up, get ourselves together before God can use us. But God uses broken people to do his work. He's not looking for a golden or a silver vessel. He's looking for a yielded vessel. The church blew up. It was incredible the work that God did through this man named Paul. 25% of the New Testament was written by a murderer. Read it yourself. Take courage and be of good cheer. God is moving in and through you in spite of your junk in ways that are inexplainable. I remember, I remember being eight years old, coming home from school and laying on the couch. And every day my sister and I, we would watch the Gospel Bill show. Every day. And at the end of every show, they would give this little salvation call. But that day, I believed it. I remember that day and I said, Jesus, I want to be yours. Would you come live in my heart forever? I remember that day. I remember praying the prayer. And I remember thinking that Jesus was a little plastic action figure. And that he had a little suitcase and he had a little recliner. And I could just picture him living in my heart. I remember that. Sometimes I still believe that. We can discuss theology later. Oh, I'm going to get shot for that one. I remember being 11 years old at summer camp. And I felt, I knew that I heard God's voice telling me that I was going to be a full-time missionary one day. And at 11 years old, I said, okay, God, I can wear ugly skirts and eat weird food for you. Sorry, any missionaries in the house. (laughs) I was 11. (laughs) I remember, and so that day, I committed myself to full-time ministry. Little did I know at 11 what that really meant. I remember when I was 15, going on my first mission trip out of the country, and I went to Haiti, and my heart blew up. My spirit inside of me just exploded. And I knew in that moment that God's plans for my life were incredible. They were greater than my wildest imagination. I remember being 18, coming to what was LCC at the time, now LCU, as a freshman. I was the weirdest, nerdiest freshman, probably. (laughs) I won't get any testimony on that one. But I remember coming to college here, and I remember getting a degree in intercultural studies and my certification in TESOL, and I was going to change the world. I was going to be unstoppable. I remember it all began with one cigarette, which led to one drink, which led to one joint. Casual and social at first, it was nothing more than a weekend party. I eventually dropped from a full-time student going to a part-time student. And in 2002, I hit a low point and I began crying out to God. 
God, you've got to save me. You've got to help me. And I remember for the first time in my life, not knowing if God was really real. Not knowing if he really heard me, but I was desperate. So then we had the little missions week. And as a missions major, I had to introduce someone. Lo and behold, I introduced a missions organization out of Florida, who later that summer I would go to Kenya with and live for two months. It was perfect. I mean, God just hooked me up. I'd always dreamed of going to Africa since I was a kid. And in that moment when I had nowhere else to go, God gave me somewhere to go. But not just somewhere to go, something to be. And for the first time in years, dreams were renewed, passions were restored. I quit everything. I quit smoking. I quit drinking everything cold turkey to go. And boy, when I got back, I was on a mountaintop experience. But when I got home, nothing had changed. Things were still the same, and I felt trapped. I ended up calling a friend in Lincoln, and I was going to Second Baptist Church at the time. And they knew part of my story, and and I was crying, and I said, I need somewhere to go. So I ended up living with two different families. I stayed strong for a while, and I was really focused, and I was going to live this thing out and walk this thing out. And then I began slipping up again. I began drinking again. I remember being so hungover one morning in church. I felt so miserable. And I was so ashamed. I had no desire to live. I really had no clue if God was real. Path of destruction. I left it everywhere I went. Countless people who I injured deeply in the quake of my selfish sin. And for that, I truly am sorry. See, our messiness blinds us. I didn't see it back then. I see it now. I get it. I don't have scales on my eyes anymore. The next next few years of my life became an absolute mess. I lived in Springfield, worked full-time, and went to school part-time. And God became nothing more to me than a textbook subject, someone I had to write papers on. I had all kinds of head knowledge. My brain was crammed, as all you do, I'm sure, this point in the semester. But I had very little, if any, heart knowledge. I knew things in my head to be true about God, but I didn't believe them in my heart. And my heart was hard. How I kept coming to this school and living this double life is beyond explainable outside of God's grace. But over the years, I figured out a way to justify my sin. Literally every conversation with God would end up like this. God, come on, it's cool. You know I'm just trying to survive. You know I'm just trying to make it. I'm not out shooting anyone. God, I'm not out sleeping around. Our messiness blinds us. It was my senior year here at school. Well, at least it was the eighth year that I was at school here. (laughs) I don't know if that qualifies as senior or senior citizen or what, but... Either way, it's my eighth year, and I only had a few classes left. Every weekend, I went to St. Louis, and I hit up the clubs, just living a life that was full of death and destruction. I was desperate for help. 
but I didn't know how to get help. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to be so broken and so imperfect in this thing called community. In this place of a, of a Christian school where everyone's aspiring to be a preacher and a teacher and a business owner and a missionary. And here I was, just lost in a mess. I only had a few classes left. I literally would drive straight through the night from St. Louis to Lincoln to make my 8 o'clock class with Dr. Karen Step. I had no clue what was going on. I was high constantly. I didn't sleep much. I didn't eat much. My priorities were all jacked up. But deep down at the end of every day, this was not the life that I had planned. This is not what I foresaw when I committed my life to full-time ministry. This was not what I wanted when I asked Jesus to come live up in my heart. But nonetheless, here I was. I was ready to drop out of school, failing both classes and having no direction, no hope. I told my professor one day, Dr. E, as I would call her, that I was quitting school. Her response struck me. She said, no, you're not. (laughs) I've never wanted to swing at a professor, but I did that day. And then she asked me a question that for me was a road to Damascus moment. She said, Tara, what are your dreams? What do you want to do with your life? And that was the first time in years that anyone stopped to call me by name, that anyone stopped and looked into my eyes, that I had stopped and remembered the dreams that I had as a kid, the dreams that I had in high school, the dreams that I had when I first came to this place. It was a pivotal point in my life. To make a long story short, I ended up moving in with the East Steps and lived with them for about nine months. The way they took me under their wings and loved me was incredible. <laughs> I, mean, I was a mess, y'all. I was miserable. I was mad. I was messed up. Matter of fact, I didn't even plan on staying there long. I had just selling weed by this point. So my plan was, I'm going to stay with them 30 days, not tell them anything, just be cool. And then I'm going to make a living doing that, and I'll get my feet on the ground, and then I'll be on my way. (laughs) Wow. Did God have other plans for me? They loved me as I was. Messed up, broken, jacked up. And for the first time in years, I experienced that love. And it spoke of something greater. It spoke of a God who is bigger and who is alive and who is incapable of not loving us. God uses his people to bring healing and understanding. Nine months later, I was clean and sober and ended up moving to Texas for my internship, which would take place at House of Faith. Thank you, Miriam Wyndham, for that one. (laughs) Wasn't supposed to go there, had no desire to go there. My previous internship fell out, and so she said, what about Texas? And she told me to pray about it. I don't think she knew I didn't really pray at that point. I just didn't do bad things, all right? 
So I was like, Texas, I'm not going to Texas. It's full of rednecks and cowboys. I thought Indians rode on horses there. I had no understanding. (laughs) Turns out they are there. People do ride horses down the street. But when I first got to House of Faith, I hated it. All they did there was pray and eat. And if you've ever been to House of Faith, you can testify to that. All they did was pray and eat and talk about Jesus. And I had no clue. I had no clue. I, I just was there. And I didn't do, quote, bad things anymore. I would count granola bars every day and pack bins and do all this busy work. And I didn't get it. I didn't have a real relationship with Jesus at this point. I didn't pray. I mean, like, if a cop pulled out to follow me, and would be like, oh, Lord, please help me. <laughs> you know, but I, I really didn't pray outside of that. I didn't, I didn't worship. I couldn't stand church music. And I surely didn't read my Bible. But a month and a half into my time there, a student came up to me, and I'll never forget it. He said, Tara, I'm trying to quit smoking weed, and I don't know what to do. And it was like this light bulb went off in my head. And for the first time, I could see how God was using everything crummy from my life for his good. And I began to share with him my testimony. I said, look, man, you got to quit hanging with your friends. You can't be around it. You know, giving him practical advice that helped me. Because, see, when you've been down a road, you find there's other people on that road that need help, that need hope. So I went home that night, and I began talking to God, and it's real awkward, like, (laughs) uh, hey, God, it's me. Yeah, you know that, because you know everything. So, um, (laughs) and it was hard. I had to get back to that place, like how it was when I was eight years old. I had so much junk and hardness inside of myself that God had to work through. And I began day by day talking to God a little bit more every day, and I began reading my Bible, and it was I'm just going to be real honest with y'all. I, I don't remember a thing from my college years here, okay? Unfortunately, I mean, that's just a byproduct of the life I lived, but I don't, I don't get it. I didn't get it, and I was frustrated because I knew I needed to read my Bible, but I just didn't get it, and so I prayed. I was like, God, please help me. Make this thing real to me, and one night I was reading, and just like that, it was like I was eight years old again. The scriptures were alive to me. And I felt and heard God talking to me, which I hadn't known in a really long time. A few weeks later, I had an encounter with a little girl who was fighting over a jump rope with another student. Being the adult I am, I stepped in to help. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes while screaming at me and told me in a few different select words that I won't say here tonight to be quiet and leave her alone. And that day, I wanted to take that little girl and shot put her across the fence. (laughs) I can confess that now. But that day, I dropped the jump rope, and I walked away, and I literally told God, God, you can send someone else to deal with that one. (laughs) Sure enough, weeks later, I found out that this little girl raises herself, taking care of her and her younger brother. Mom lives a wild life, is in and out of the picture. Dad's in prison, and Grandma's too busy working hard trying to provide for them. This little girl feels left and unwanted, incapable of being unloved, or incapable of being loved. 
And in that moment, I knew that God sent me to her, and he sent her to me. And our hearts were beautifully knit together in that moment. I never would have thought that I would live in Texas, working with at-risk youth and children. I see mini-me's all over, all the time. It's pretty funny, pretty scary, too. Children who are going through what I went through as a child, youth who are held in bondage to the things that once enslaved me. But God has given me a story. God has begun a work of reconciliation in my life. Begun as in the process of continuing to be done. God can use us in spite of us. And it's in Texas where I learned who God really was all over again. That he was my father. That he was my best friend. That he was the lover of my soul and he was my beloved He's not this God who sits in a cloud and zaps people with lightning. He loved me. And I began to look back over my life and to see his presence in my life through professors, through families at church, through my sister, through others who prayed me through. His grace and mercy and love in my life is so incredibly overwhelming that there are times I'm just left in tears. And all I can say is, thank you, God. Reconciliation is a process. It never happens once. It's an ongoing thing where God takes us where we are and continues to shape and mold us into what he has made us to be. Am I perfect? Not at all. This June, I will celebrate five years of having been clean and sober, and I give glory to God for that. But do I still struggle? Absolutely. There are days that I miss my old life. I miss my old friends. But this much I know to be true. The more I have of Jesus, the more I taste and experience Jesus and his love for me and his goodness to me, the less I desire that old junk. I've been praying all week and asking God to take me back to my road to Damascus. So here I am in Lincoln, Illinois, middle of nowhere with outrageous wind, middle of cornfield. (laughs) Here I am, and it's left me with tears. God is good. God is faithful. God is continually restoring our friendship together And with great confidence and joy, I can truly and freely say, on the same campus where it all began, on the same campus where it all went wrong, on the same campus where I got in trouble countless times, that there is no other place I'd rather be than with Jesus. And he will use you if you will let him. In your weaknesses, Christ is made strong. In your brokenness, the glory of God is revealed. And in your admitting of God, I'm so imperfect and I'm so messed up. But I trust you. God will use you. Love came down and rescued me. Love came down and set me free. 
I am yours, I am forever yours. On mountains high or valleys low, I sing out, remind my soul, I am yours, I am forever yours. <laughs> 